Tonight, straight from the source, Donald Trump will turn himself in in Georgia this Thursday, confirmed by none other than the defendant himself. His bond has strict conditions unlike the others that we've seen so far. And this very minute, the window has just closed to qualify for Wednesday's first Republican debate. The overwhelming frontrunner says that he won't be there, but one of his rivals who will be is with me tonight. Plus, President Biden on the ground in Maui this hour after facing criticism for his administration's response to the deadliest U.S. wildfire in more than a century, with 850 people still missing tonight. I'm Kaylin Collins, and this is The Source. We have now hit surrender week, and tonight Donald Trump has confirmed he will be arrested for a fourth time in Georgia on Thursday, asking anyone who was reading his social media posts from just a few moments ago if they can even believe it. This is where it's going to happen. We have been keeping a very close watch on the Fulton County Jail all day, awaiting the arrival of not just Trump, but also his 18 co-defendants in the election interference case. The former president and at least four other members of what prosecutors allege was a criminal enterprise negotiated their bond agreements via their attorneys today. Trump's bond was set at $200,000. His former attorney, John Eastman, and also Kenneth Cheeseboro, who was the alleged architect of the fake electors plot, both had their bonds set at $100,000. We have just learned that John Eastman will surrender on Wednesday. Then there is Ray Smith, another attorney who was working with the Trump team. His bond was set at $50,000. And Scott Hall, who, lest we forget, is actually a bail bondsman, had his own bond set at $10,000 today. But most notable were the conditions for Trump's release on his deal. The terms were more extensive than those that were set for other defendants, at least the ones that we saw today. Trump was repeatedly instructed not to threaten any co-defendant, witness, or victim, including via social media. This is his first bond agreement that actually specifies direct or indirect threats on social media, and it includes repost of other people's posts. So the million-dollar question, or really the $200,000 one, is will he comply? Remember, the day of his latest indictment, Trump warned a witness in that case, former Georgia Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, not to testify before the grand jury that ultimately voted to indict Trump. Meanwhile, a source is telling CNN that employees with the sheriff's office are now facing threats as they themselves are waiting for more of these surrenders to happen this week. CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Perez joins me now to break this down. Evan, of course, you know, we are now hearing from Trump himself. He's going to turn himself in on Thursday. What do we think that's going to look like? Well, Caitlin, it's going to look unlike any of the other times, the other three times that the former president has had to uh, surrender and be arrested and processed uh, as part of facing charges for uh, for various crimes. And, uh, you know, he's been given a lot of deference, uh, both in uh, Manhattan and also in the two federal indictments uh, where they processed him and they did everything as quickly as possible to get him in and out. In, a, in Fulton County, they're bringing him to that county jail, the one that you just saw uh, there on your screen. It's, it's actually been, been the, under scrutiny by the Justice Department for some of the conditions there for the prisoners that are held there. And 
So the former president is certainly going in there. He's going to be treated, according to uh, the sheriff's uh, office down there, he's going to be treated like anybody else. And so they're going to fingerprint him. They're going to book him. They're going to uh, take a, a mugshot, which we may be able to see because Georgia law allows the release uh, of those uh, of those book booking photographs, unlike the federal system. And in the federal system, they didn't even take a mugshot of him. So we know that this is going to be looking a lot different from uh, from the previous times that the former president has had to be processed. Now, we also know that this is one where he's not going to be facing arraignment. This is only the processing uh, procedure that Georgia separates from uh, him having to come back in a few weeks for that separate uh, proceeding where he's going to be formally arraigned. Yeah, and the bond agreement we saw, I mean, it was just really notable to look at Trump's deal compared to John Eastman's. I mean, it has strict rules for his release. I mean, walk us through what they are. Right. And it also is different from some of the other ones, uh, the ones that he's faced in his previous arrest, where he simply was warned by judges to make sure he didn't talk to witnesses except through his lawyers, to make sure he didn't issue any threats. In this case, uh, as you pointed out in that document uh, that we, we, we showed on screen just now, um, I'll read you just a part of what it says. It says uh, that the defendant shall perform no act to intimidate any person known to him or her to be a co-defendant or witness in this case, or to otherwise obstruct the administration of justice. The, the above, uh, it continues, shall include but are not limited to posts on social media or reposts uh, uh, posts by, made, made by another individual on social media. Again, this is something, as you pointed out, uh, Caitlin, just a few minutes ago, uh, you know, he basically warned uh, Jeff Duncan, uh, one of the key witnesses uh, against him, against testifying on the day of his indictment, so that clearly the judge knows the history of the former president, certainly something that even the judge here in Washington just a couple of weeks ago warned him against doing. This time, they're putting it on paper, and they're making sure that he knows uh, the, he's, on, he's being watched, essentially, by the judges. Certainly is. Evan Perez, thank you. Sure. I'm joined now by two top legal minds, Jennifer Rogers and former federal prosecutor and CNN legal analyst, and Tamadaya Agonga-Williams, former senior investigative counsel for the January 6th committee. Jennifer, when you look at these, these rules for what Trump can and cannot say, I mean, I know this even caught the attention of Trump's attorneys today. What happens if he violates the terms? Well, that's the million dollar question, Caitlin, because I'm sure the judge doesn't want to even attempt to con completely revoke his bail and remand him into custody. But this is the first step down that road if he violates this order. Before getting there, the judge probably might give him another warning, uh, might also revoke some of the money that's been posted for the bail. But what everyone here really wants is not to see him in prison pending trial, but to see him stop the campaign of witness intimidation disparaging players in all of these cases. That's really what the goal is here, not to revoke his bail, but to get him to stop trying to interfere with these cases. So we'll see how it goes from here. And Thibodeau, I mean, the president's attorneys, former president's attorneys are negotiating with the district attorney's office of, of what Thursday actually looks like when he does show up. I mean, obviously this is rare, but what would those negotiations even look like behind closed doors? Is it about the mugshot, the uh, fingerprinting? What does that look like? What I suspect is that President Trump is looking to get in and out of there as quickly as possible. And I think the question for D.A. Willis is how much is she going to treat him like a typical defendant versus give him special treatment? And what I suspect they're negotiating are the specific terms from the mugshot 
to the processing, to whether or not he's going to be stuck waiting at it all, or can he be in and out? I think that's a real question. Who actually makes the decision on the mugshot? So the mugshot, first in Georgia law, it's a required mugshot. Now, all processing in these kinds of situations is handled by the law enforcement officers. But I think practically any decision here as to whether or not a mugshot will be bypassed is really going to be between D.A. Willis and President Trump. And Jennifer, I mean, today it was five people in total who negotiated their their bond agreements. It just stands out. I mean, Scott Hall is actually a bail bondsman. The other people here, Ken Cheesebro, John Eastman, Ray Smith, they're all attorneys. They are typically on the other side of this criminal process. But now, you know, they're subject to bail agreements that typically they were negotiating. Yeah, this case is certainly like no other, including the identities of the 19 co-defendants here. It's you know, it's it's new territory for everyone. I think as long as Tamadai was saying, if if Fonnie Willis and her office and all the law enforcement folks involved are professional about this and do their best to streamline this procedure, then you know, I think everything will go about as smoothly as it can, given the divergent players, as you mentioned. Yeah, we also know this is pretty expensive. I mean, racketeering cases famously take a long time. It's a lot of money. Obviously, Trump has his own legal to fund, but we're looking at this today. Kathy Latham, she's one of the co-defendants. She's a retired school teacher. She has posted, and she's accused of acting as a fake elector. She set up a GoFundMe, and so far it's raised $3,600. I mean, her goal is half a million dollars. Jenna Ellis, another Trump attorney who was charged, tweeted, why isn't MAGA Inc. funding everyone's defense? What kind of effect does financial pressure like that have on people who are co-defendants here? So the big question for defendants here is what to do. Do I cooperate? Do I plead guilty? Do I fight? And financial pressure is one of those things that typically impacts defendants' decision on how to move forward. Financial pressure means you want the case to end. You want a way out. And I think defendants here that are feeling that pressure are going to be more inclined to talk to D.A. Willis and get a path out. And you think that could apply to people like, I mean, Jenna Ellis? She's, she's openly complaining about the fact that they're not covering her legal fees, that the Trump side's not. I think 100%. And what's key here is that we're just getting started. They haven't been pretrial motions. They haven't really done the process here. And these criminal cases are going to be complicated. And with each complication, the costs skyrocket. Yeah. Another person, Jennifer, who is charged here is Mark Meadows, obviously Trump's former chief of staff. He's arguing in a new filing that the charges against him, he believes, should be dismissed. I mean, he says he should have immunity because he was serving as the chief of staff in this official role, setting up meetings with state officials. I mean, is that something that a court would buy, you think? I think ultimately it will fail that argument, but there's some facial appeal to it in the sense that he wasn't really running this show, right? He's the chief of staff. He's doing what he's directed in terms of this plot. And a lot of what he was doing, as alleged in the indictment, are things that aren't necessarily inherently illegal in terms of setting up meetings, making calls, and those sorts of things. So I, I think ultimately a judge will decide that there was a line that was crossed when they went from challenging the votes, getting recounts, filing court cases, and turning to filing false documents and so on. Uh, but it's it's going to take some parsing through, and the judge will have to, of course, look at uh, the federal defenses that he's alleging to get there. Jennifer Rogers, Timothy Ganga-Williams, thank you both for joining me. Exactly 48 hours from now, the first Republican debate is going to be underway, but no one named Trump will be on that stage, at least according to him. Will that be an opportunity for my next guest and the other rivals who will be there to break out of the frontrunner's shadow? 
And Michael Cohen is also here ahead as yet another indicted attorney is lamenting that Trump won't pay her legal bills either. Time is up for any Republican presidential hopeful who is still trying to get on the debate stage Wednesday night. The deadline for making that cut hit about 15 minutes ago or so. The official determination of who made it and who missed will be announced by the Republican National Committee. We know the party's frontrunner, Donald Trump, has said he will not be there, though, of course, he has qualified to be on that stage. That leaves these eight candidates as those that we know for sure have fully qualified. It's a list that includes my next guest. And let's get straight to the source with 2024 presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. Vivek, thanks for being here. You know, you said in May that you believed it would be embarrassing, a disaster, and fundamentally uncourageous for for Donald Trump to refuse to debate. Do you still feel that way tonight? Well, look, if he refuses to debate through the entire debate season, I have an issue with that. But I have no issue with him skipping the first couple of debates. The truth is, many people in this country didn't even know who I was six months ago. So this is a good opportunity for me to introduce myself to the country. He's been on that debate stage countless times. He's also been U.S. president for four years. So if he wants to skip the first couple of them, I have no issue with that. But I do think he should be on the debate stage at some point throughout the course of this year. So that's where I'm at. You you rarely, if ever, really criticize Trump directly. I think part of that and tell me if I'm wrong, is part of a strategy when it comes to winning over his voters. But how do you beat the Republican frontrunner in this race without directly engaging him? Well, the truth is, the reason I don't want to criticize Trump is because everybody else from, you know, networks like the one we're on right now on down are doing plenty good job of making up attacks that shouldn't even exist. Prosecutors across this country charging cases that should have never been brought. I think Donald Trump's defeat of Hillary Clinton was probably the single most important political event of my lifetime. So I don't care to pile on with those criticisms. I think he was a good president, but I want to build on his agenda to take the America First movement to the next level. The fact is I'm 38 years old. I have fresh legs. I am able to reach young people across this country. And I believe I am the only candidate in this race who can actually deliver a landslide election, a Reagan 1980-style moral mandate By building a coalition, a multi-ethnic working class coalition of black Americans, Hispanic Americans, white Americans, Asian Americans, men, women, young, old, that's what it's going to take to win this election. No state left behind, no city left behind, no American left behind. And you've seen that in the way I'm campaigning from the south side of Chicago to the inner city of Philadelphia in Kensington. That's different than any other candidate in this race. And Caitlin, that's why I'm confident that I'm going to win it in a landslide do it by uniting the Republican Party and uniting this country, not by criticizing other candidates, Donald Trump on down, but by articulating a vision for where we are going. And it's working. Look at where I am in the polls relative to six months ago. It seems to be that we're well on our way to get there. One thing I'll say is we're not making up any attacks on Donald Trump. I mean, covering his indictments is one thing. How you feel about those is uh, pretty clear. One thing that you will likely be asked about on Wednesday night is foreign policy. And you recently said that to protect Taiwan, you would do this. Guess what? We'll put a gun in every Taiwanese household, train them how to use it. That is how you make Xi Jinping think twice. Do you really think that would be a sufficient plan to deter a Chinese invasion if it includes long-range missiles, ground troops, an aerial blockade, a naval blockade? Caitlin, I mean, all of Caitlin, the different measures Caitlin, here? Caitlin, Caitlin, 
Caitlin. Of course it's not sufficient. You take that tiny little clip. When I've articulated at the Nixon Library last week, a one-hour speech with a whole range of deterrents, that is part of it. But I've also said that I would pull Russia out of its military alliance with China. I've also said that we would bolster our partnership with India to be able to close the Andaman Sea and the Malacca Strait. I've also said that we would actually send a signal very clearly that we will defend Taiwan, moving from strategic ambiguity to strategic clarity to say that we will defend Taiwan until we have semiconductor independence in this country. And so, yes, part of this is turning Taiwan into a porcupine. I think exporting our Second Amendment is a relatively free or low-cost way to do that. But I find it laughable that you will take that clip and then put words into my mouth as though that was a sufficient deterrent. Caitlin, with due respect, that's a joke, especially when I've offered as expansive of a deterrent strategy as I have. It's not putting words into your mouth, and it's not saying that you didn't say those other things. It's just saying that you did say that part of your effort when it comes to Taiwan is giving people in Taiwan (laughs) handguns. This is really funny, Caitlin. It just is a, it's been very educational for me to learn how media works. Yes, that is important. That is, no one ever said that was sufficient to deter an invasion. From India to Russia to what I've said we would do with moving Ohio-class SSGNs to the South China Sea and to the Indo-Pacific, this is the stuff of actual deterrence and also strategic clarity that we would actually defend Taiwan. Yes, I do think I am the president who best knows how to deter China from going after Taiwan before we've achieved semiconductor independence which is the most important foreign policy accomplishment the next U.S. president can deliver. And I gave a specific speech at the Nixon Library in a big part actually but moving Russia out of China's alliance. But you also said that you would open up an NRA bureau Is the reverse of what Nixon would have done. I mean, you also talked about— Yes, I— I, 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 I just think yes, when you listen to, to plans to, to deter China, you know, it typically focuses on— radar systems and missiles that they need, not necessarily AR-15s. Caitlin, you might be able to do this trick better with other candidates who don't really know it's how to respond to the I'm game. It's not a trick. I'm just simply asking what your clear. plan is with Taiwan Let, and following what up is my on plan? something you I've suggested. Been, what, I, what I have said countless times is strategic partnership with India to close the Malacca Strait if necessary. That's where China gets its Middle Eastern oil supplies. The number one thing to do, I've said, is end the war in Ukraine by pulling apart the Russia-China alliance. Xi Jinping's calculus right now is that if the U.S. actually is in dual conflict with Russia and China, then that makes it easier for China to go after Taiwan. So I say disband that alliance. I also think that we should, and I've said this many times, we should take many one of the destroyers that are in Japan, run one a week through the Taiwan Strait until we've achieved semiconductor independence, move to two Ohio-class SSGNs loaded with 100-plus tomahawks apiece to the South China Sea and to the Indian Ocean. This is part of a comprehensive strategy that I've articulated in multiple places. But as part of that, I do think there's a reason why China does not have a Second Amendment. China is deathly afraid of a Second Amendment in its own country. And so making that an export to Taiwan is part of what many military experts call the porcupine strategy, which I do subscribe to and believe in. But I will not allow someone to put words in my mouth to say that I ever said that was sufficient. It is not. I'm not putting words in your mouth. I'm simply asking about something you said. We played a quote that that you've made. Speaking of another comment that you've made. I never said it was sufficient. Vivek, speaking (laughs) of another comment that you've made that is getting attention today about 9-11, a report in The Atlantic that you gave an interview to, you said, quote, I think it is legitimate to say how many police, how many federal agents were on the planes that hit the Twin Towers. Maybe the answer is zero. It probably is zero for all I know, right? I have no reason to think it was anything other than zero. But if we're doing a comprehensive assessment of what happened on 9-11, 
We have a 9-11 commission. Absolutely, there should be an answer the public knows the answer to. Explain to me what you meant there. This is really, it's funny. I mean, the Atlantic is playing the same game as CNN. It's funny. What I said is on January 6th, I do believe that there were many federal agents in the field and we deserve to know who they are. On 9-11, what I've said is that the government lied. And this is incontrovertible evidence, Caitlin. The government lied about Saudi Arabia's involvement. There was a Saudi spy named Al-Bayoumi who they lied and the government lied and the 9-11 commission lied. We know that because declassified reports in 2021 Which revealed that Al-Bayoumi was indeed. What's that? Yeah, the report that the President Biden declassified. Yes. But your quote here, are you telling me that the quote is wrong 20 years later, here? yeah. But are you telling me that I'm your quote, you quote is wrong, wrong here because actually. it says... How many federal actually, agents were on the planes in the asked, Twin Towers? <laughs> yeah, when I, when I actually, and this is just lifting the curtain on how media works again, I asked that reporter to send the recording because it was on the record. He refused to do it. But we had a free-flowing conversation. The truth is there are lies the government has told about 9-11, but it's not the ones that somebody put in my mouth. It's the one that I articulated, which is that Saudi Arabia, absolutely, their intelligence was involved in 9-11. And that's a difficult thing you're not supposed to say. The facts back that up. Separately, as it relates to January 6th, Same story all over again. There were federal agents in the field. I think they've lied about how many there were. And we, the people, deserve the truth, despite the layers of distortion that exist in the media to prevent us from getting it. You're saying that you were misquoted here. So we will take you at your word. You're saying that you were misquoted here. But you were asked another time recently about whether or not 9-11 was an inside job. This is what your response was. 9-11, inside job or uh, exactly how the government tells us? I don't believe the government has told us the truth. Again, I'm driven by evidence and data. What I've seen in the last several years is we have to be skeptical of what the government does tell us. I haven't seen evidence to the contrary, but do I believe everything the government told us about it? Absolutely not. I I believe the 9-11 commission, absolutely not. I mean, Vic, I think people look at those comments. They look at what you said in the Atlantic, which you say you were misquoted. They look at comments that you've made about the Federal Reserve adding zeros to media companies' bank accounts. And I mean, it looks like you're floating conspiracy theories with this defense of I'm just asking questions. Well, when you actually quote me, those are my words and I stand by them. So somebody else quoting me, putting words in my mouth, I have a problem with. But those words I stand by. You want to know why? Because we literally know the FBI, the 9-11 Commission, the U.S. government on down told us specifically that Saudi Arabia had no involvement. 20 plus years later, quietly declassifying documents showing that not only did Saudi Arabia have involvement, it was a Saudi intelligence agent that received two of those terrorists that crashed planes on 9-11, killing Americans But the question was, is 9-11 an inside job? And And you didn't say no. That's what I think people are looking at. Caitlin, you, you know what's really funny? You literally just played that. You could play it for your audience again. He said, or do you believe everything the government has told us? And my answer was, I do not believe everything the government has told us but you see because the they point, lied. The point is and that I know this game comes open. up, Caitlin, it's every time there's game. an outsider who comes in. Open, <laughs> it leaves the door open, and someone who's Caitlin, a 9-11 truther looks at that and says, that that's exactly lies. what I believe. You that think the government's a, lying about 9-11? Who, I think the government has systematically and for a very long time lied about 9-11. And I think I'm the what only presidential exactly candidate who has told us the about? truth. Saudi Arabia's involvement. It is absolutely true. But you don't that think Saudi that 9-11 was, was an inside job, correct? Of course not. And okay. I've never said it. <laughs> but but the but media filters do create answer. a lot of It's not a media filter. You have to stop blaming the media. We're, I'm asking you about comments that you have made. And I'm telling you that the comments I made, the ones you just played, are indeed what I believe which was not that 9-11 was an inside job, but that Saudi Arabia absolutely was involved 
And our government for 20 years lied to the American people about there it. There was an entire 9-11 commission fact, report actually. on this. Yes, and it, will, and it lied, and it was false. And in fact, you know where that's coming out, Caitlin? There's now a case, a federal case in the Southern District of New York, where the government of Saudi Arabia is being sued by victims of families. Know, that's families, why this is yes. resurfacing itself. It is relevant, and it turns out But there's out a difference in, in asking questions about Saudi Arabia's involvement and the government's involvement, and then pushing this idea that whenever what your comment about who was on the plane and then was 9-11 an inside job where you did not say no earlier. That's why it's important to clarify those comments, because otherwise it feels like you're towing the line when it comes to conspiracy theories. Caitlin, I, it is, I, I, I am guilty as charged that I do not follow the establishment super PAC donor approved script on these questions, but I am speaking truth grounded in fact at every step of the way. And that's what's really elicited something of an anaphylactic reaction of the kind we saw in 2016 against a different candidate. But this time I'm going to be grounded in principles and conviction, not just vengeance and grievance, well, which is exactly how we will reunite this country. That's just simply what we were asking for. But Vivek Ramaswamy will yes. leave it there. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you, Caitlin. We'll talk about those comments coming up. Also, what a debate will look like without the far and away frontrunner. Will Vivek Ramaswamy and others who are on stage Wednesday night be able to capitalize on his absence? We'll take it to two political powerhouses next. An update for you tonight on what Wednesday in Milwaukee is going to look like. We are now hearing from sources that Fox News has told the Trump campaign that the former president's surrogates are not going to be allowed inside the spin room at Wednesday's debate, given Donald Trump himself has announced he will not be taking part. Joining me now, Jamal Simmons, former deputy assistant to President Biden and former communications director to Vice President Harris, and Alyssa Farrah Griffin, the former Trump White House communications director. Alyssa, I mean, we have a lot to get to on the debate, but on Vivek Ramaswamy, one part of Wednesday night will be a lot of questions, you know, not just about maybe what he said about 9-11, but also his approach to, to foreign policy and what that looks like, including his comments on Israel. I think as he's starting to rise in the polls and kind of start nipping at DeSantis's heels, you're going to see the more traditional Republicans in the field challenge just how green he is. He made a comment about cutting aid to Israel that had the Republican Jewish coalition come out against him. You, no one's ever won a Republican primary by not being radically pro-Israel. Um, this is the thing. Every cycle, there tends to be, whether it's Herman Cain, Ben Carson, people who are interesting, outside-the-box characters that get a certain amount of juice, but pretty quickly it shows that they're not ready to be the commander-in-chief the leader of the free world. I mean, we couldn't be more ideologically different. And we were backstage watching like, ooh, this guy's too green. Yeah, you know, I watched it. You did a great job holding his feet to the fire on some of those comments, particularly around Taiwan. And I remember the, the other comment he made about Taiwan, which is that they're going to be able to stay our friend until 2028 when we have semiconductor independence, at which point China can have them. Right. So <laughs> that is the to part. To which you knew it was pretty. <laughs> <laughs> you knew it was like, whoa, wait a minute. What are you talking about, dude? So I think this is this is something he's just not ready for. Primetime. What do we make about I mean, he'll be on the stage on Wednesday night. Trump will not be there. What do you make of the fact that uh, is it going to be the opportunity for other candidates to seize the moment? Or is it going to be even if you have a breakout performance? Trump turns himself in in Georgia the next day, and it kind of just is forgettable. Listen, I think candidates are going to be playing for number two. Basically, everyone is going to be coming for DeSantis to try to get into that number two spot and convince donors and supporters that they should be the head-to-head -head candidate against Donald Trump. Trump is so far ahead that there'll be some shots at him. Chris Christie will litigate the case. But I actually expect more infighting on the stage. I think there's going to be a lot of shots at DeSantis. And I do think Vivek's going to get challenged on some of these out-of-the-box uh, kind of foreign policy approaches. And DeSantis 
focus has been on defense, it feels like, for months now almost. But he was over the weekend, his campaign, after he was talking about, you know, people who just look at what Trump posts on Truth Social and he's saying that they can't be these listless vessels was the term he used and that the Trump campaign seized on. He says they were referring to people in Congress and not voters. But, I mean, is that an opening for the Trump campaign? Is it a legitimate point? What do you make of that? You know, I think uh, certainly Trump will take after DeSantis for whatever reason he can. He's shown a great skill at uh, deconstructing Governor DeSantis. The danger for Donald Trump for not showing up, I think, is this. If for some reason one of these candidates does something that catches fire, it's something that's really an interesting point, he won't be on stage to be able to sort of tamp that fire down. He won't be able to redirect. And Donald Trump, if he's good at anything, he can take the limelight and steal it back. He'll be trying to do it through social media posts, which might not have the same impact as him being on stage, taking after somebody who just had a great moment. But what do Republican voters think about this? I mean, the Wall Street Journal, their op-ed, their editorial board op-ed, they have been critical of Trump recently. But on the idea that he's ducking out of the debate, they said uh, he's carrying into the general election more baggage than British royals. Yet Mr. Trump expects GOP voters to nominate him without so much as a primary debate, much less a real nominating contest. Well, do listen, voters see it that way? It's hard to say. Strategically, I don't think it really makes sense for Trump to be there. I don't see what he has to gain when he's polling as high ahead as he is. I think for democracy and for the voters, like seeing what he's for and what his next term would look like is important and he should be there. But honestly, I mean, I hope that it's an opportunity that someone like a Nikki Haley or a Tim Scott, a more future looking candidate, is able to break through and reach some Americans with the idea that we could talk about something other than four indictments, other than the baggage of 2020. And one thing I am going to be watching for, I'm super curious because this is a Fox hosted debate. How are they going to deal with the election lies and the question over did Joe Biden win in 2020? They've got their own legal things they've got to dance around following the Dominion lawsuit. So that'll be kind of an interesting dividing point for the candidates, but also the network. What do you think? Well, we'll also see whatever happens on stage. Donald Trump's statements, uh, whatever, whoever said, whatever they say on stage, we will be comparing what each candidate says versus what Donald Trump thinks. He, it's like his ghost will be on the stage, even though his body won't. Jamal Simmons, Alyssa Farrah Griffin, thank you both. All right, speaking of earlier, Rudy Giuliani in Georgia, he's learning the hard way that Trump is not going to be paying his legal bills based on our reporting. Now another indicted former Trump attorney is saying that as well, Jenna Ellis something my next guest may not be surprised to hear. Michael Cohen knows from experience. He'll be here next. Donald Trump says he will now surrender on Thursday in Georgia. Unlike in his other indictments, the former president will be required to pay a cash bond in Georgia, just like 61% of people charged with a felony in this country. My next guest was one of those people back in 2018 when he faced a $500,000 bond for his actions in protecting Donald Trump. Michael Cohen's book is Revenge. He has two podcasts, Political Breakdown and Culpa, and he joins me now. Michael, I mean, what do you make of, of Trump's $200,000 bond, the fact that he, unlike in his other ones, he is going to have to post at least part of that here? Look, at the end of the day, $200,000, he'll have no problem with raising the money. Worst comes to worst, he'll go to his stupid supporters to do it, and they'll just pony it up to one of his various different packs. But I find it, I find it ironic or comical that I had to post a $500,000 bond for another man having an affair and receiving back the money that I received, you know, received from him 
and his is $200,000 for trying to overturn a free and fair election. I mean, I just, I don't see the correlation, but it is what it is. You mentioned his legal defense fund that he has. Jenna Ellis, who is a former Trump attorney that was a vociferous defender of his, is now saying, you know, this has become one of the, a bigger principle than just one man. Why isn't MAGA Inc. funding everyone's defense? I mean, what do you make of the fact that there are some people whose legal bills he covers and other people like Jen Ellis who are upset that their bills aren't being covered? There's never a reason for Donald that you can actually isolate and say, why is he paying, well, we know for Don Jr., right, or for Kimberly Gargoyle, but we don't know as to why not for Jen Ellis, why not for Rudy Giuliani. Donald's an idiot. Let me just be very clear when it comes to paying money. He is truly an idiot. He has not learned yet that the last person that you want, three people you don't want to throw under the bus like that, your lawyer, your doctor, and your mechanic. Because one way or the other, you're going to go down the hill and there'll be no breaks. That's the problem. He has still not learned. And allegedly, from Rudy's own mouth, he claims that he has smoking gun um, information about Donald. Well, if that's true... I strongly suggest Rudy, and I don't have to suggest anything to Rudy. He's the one that, you know, basically came up with this concept of strong arming when he was the head of the Southern District of New York. He's going to need to speak, and he's going to need to speak before everybody else does. You think Trump's making a mistake by by not paying for more of Rudy Giuliani's legal fees? Absolutely. What do you think about Rudy Giuliani? I mean, he, what we are told from our reporting is that he went down there with Bob Costello, his attorney, twice in late April. And I was told by sources they basically told Trump it was in his best interest to pay for Rudy Giuliani's legal fees. He paid a, a small fee, but, but not the seven figures that he's dealing with. Or any of the money that Donald allegedly owed to Rudy from past performance, which, again, <laughs> it's not the job that Rudy did for Donald. I don't know if I would pay either, but at the end of the day, when your life is basically hanging on the line, once again, you just don't really want to throw another lawyer under the bus. What do you make of the restrictions that were placed as part of Trump's bond deal today? It's essentially not threatening other co-defendants, unindicted co-conspirators, witnesses in this case. It says that's Included, but not limited to post on social media or repost of other people, what they say. So unless you're the recipient of the hatred that comes from Donald Trump's posts, like I have been and continue to be, unless you're the recipient of the hatred from the people that follow Donald, you really can't understand how devastating it is. I applaud the judge for putting restrictions on him. And I understand the argument about the First Amendment that they're stifling the former president, the Republican presumed nominee. I get it. But Donald, with his, you know, with his dog whistle, truly has the ability to change people's lives. You think he can comply with this? No chance. No, no chance. He can't. And what happens um, if he doesn't? Probably nothing will happen because there's obviously a fear of putting somebody in jail. I mean, maybe they'll increase his bond and then they'll do it again and then maybe even a fourth time. Uh, But Donald can't help himself. When he has a hatred or an ire uh, for somebody, he cannot help but get it off his chest. And the only way he can do it is through his untruth social. Speaking from experience? I sure am. (laughs) Michael Cohen, thank you for being here tonight. 
Coming up, we are live on the ground in Maui. President Biden is there right now. He has been meeting with the survivors of the deadliest wildfire in U.S. history. He is seeing the devastation up close himself. As tonight, we have learned more than 800 people are still missing. Tonight, President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden are on Maui viewing firsthand the devastation and pain that has been left there by the wildfires. As President Biden met with first responders and survivors, he made this vow. The country grieves with you, stands with you, and will do everything possible to help you recover, rebuild, and respect culture and traditions when the rebuilding takes place. We're with you for as long as it takes, I promise you. The Biden's visit comes about two weeks after the fires wiped out the historic town of Lahaina. It's seen by some as too little, too late. This is what one Maui resident, Ellie Sable Tactarin, told me just a few days ago. Where's the president? He decides to come here this week to come here next week. I mean, like, where, where? Aren't we Americans too? Like we're part of the United States, but why are we not, why are we getting put in the back pocket? These families need aid right away. I should note, Ella at that time told me she had dozens of family members staying in her house that had lost their homes. In total, at least 114 people have died. Tonight, we are told from officials, 850 are still missing. CNN's chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir, joins me now from Lahaina, Hawaii. Bill, what are you hearing from residents about President Biden's visit today and just overall the government response? Do they feel like they're getting the help that they need? Well, Caitlin, I literally just hung up with a community leader here, well-known and renowned on the island. If you've seen my reporting, you've met him, Uncle Archie Kalepa. He's a Hall of Fame waterman, lifeguard, uh, surfer extraordinaire. He pioneered jet ski rescues and towing surfing. He said that the president actually got out of his motorcade and came to a very specific sacred place. Uh, Apologies to my Hawaiian friends if I butcher the pronunciation, but he came to a moko uku and gave an offering. Uh, Went out of his way to sort of uh, pass on the blessings, the Hawaiian tradition uh, to the people. And he says that went so far for everyone there. And they had conversations about the future, about rebuilding this place. The main concern about sort of working class Hawaiians and multi-generational locals here is that they'll be left out of the rebuilding and that ultimate moneyed interest will just come in and buy up all this coveted uh, paradise here and and convert it into resorts and, and leave them behind. He says the conversation so far is very encouraging, but it's just a conversation. And he told me when we met in his sort of cul-de-sac command post when locals were literally taking care of themselves that he hopes this sort of compassion that the world is showing us the nation is showing us now is sustainable that they won't be forgotten in a couple weeks and then sort of the big moneyed interest vulture capitalists will come in and have their way with people who are vulnerable here but that's just one impression from one community leader of course there are others uh who protested his arrival and held up profane signs saying he shouldn't have come they're angry either at his politics or at the early response uh but that's just one voice from a leader here yeah and we want to hear what those other voices say as well bill we you've been doing great work thank you for being there and thank you for joining us and coming up 
You know that ding, ding, ding before you fasten your seatbelt in the car? Buckle up for some interesting news ahead. Did that dinging sound get your attention? You're not in your car, but strap in because you might start to hear it more often. The Biden administration is now proposing a new rule to require car manufacturers to install seatbelt warning lights and, yes, sounds for not just the front, but also back row passenger seats. Right now, the national standard actually only requires a seatbelt warning system for drivers. But the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration says that this change they believe would boost seatbelt usage and therefore save more than 100 lives per year. Car manufacturers would be allowed to decide how loud and how frequent those sounds are. The public, of course, can chime in on that proposed proposed rule for the next 60 days. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. CNN Primetime with Abby Phillips starts right now. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.